Welcome in to another episode of the Esports Network podcast in partnership with Reuters. Today, I'm talking to Raj Rajkotia at Rajkotia on Twitter. He's the CEO of NextGenTM at NextGenTM. It's a company that scales businesses primarily in the gaming space by using gamification, artificial intelligence, and esports to build up companies. In the past, he's worked for Warner Brothers, Riot Games, Toyota, Bank of America, and more important companies. Raj, thanks for joining the podcast. Uh, thank you, Mitch, for having me. So, first of all, I love to talk to people who get into the esports space coming from, I believe, a C-level executive position at another Fortune 500 company. So, you were at Toyota, and you move over to Riot Games in 2013. What was that first step into esports like? What did you see from Riot in those days that made you want to be involved in esports and League of Legends? So, um, I was in esports uh, prior to coming to esports. I was in mostly in fintech. So in the financial tech center, especially with Toyota Financial Services as a chief engineer, um, I was doing a lot of uh, cool things innovation-wise with IoT and many other technologies out there. Uh, but the gaming is my passion. So uh, it's something that I always wanted to be part of. And when I saw the opportunity with Riot Games on the gaming space, um, they were uh, barely less, I would say less than 1,000 people back then, I would say less than 500 people back then. And um, uh, with Riot, their League of Legends was growing exponentially. So, uh, and then I also started looking at their several things that they were working on, uh, everything obviously public information. And one of the things that they were heavily investing was in esports. And esports is one area that to me, it's, it's the next generation of entertainment, uh, next generation of competition, team participation, and so forth. Uh, and this is where it was a, a very interesting space where you saw the combination of the sports uh, and also the gaming side. And there are a lot of uh, cool tech and media that supports the entire infrastructure um, along with the businesses from the brand sponsorship and, and so forth and so on. So it was a big uh, learning curve for me, but it was a very fascinating and, and I would say it was worth uh, worth the journey. I definitely think so. It's similar to why I got involved in esports as well. It's a pretty common story across the industry is that once the esports scene, especially after that 2010, 2011 range when the esports scene started taking off, so many people saw it and were like, oh, I can work in gaming and competitive gaming. And there's so much opportunity for new businesses in this space that it's uh, just very enticing for people to go uh, enter that industry because there's so much you can do in the space. That's correct. Yeah. So there's a lot of creativity. There's a, almost like as the music industry went through, uh, there's a lot of elements where you look at um, um, the transformation that even the, uh, the typical sports teams are going through. Uh, esports is one place where the next generation is is heavily involved. I, I talked to many teenagers back then, uh, but most of them are now in their twenties or thirties. They're all fascinated by esports and they watch most of the activities on 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 the YouTube channels, right, or the Twitch or the Discord and so forth and so on. Compared to uh, being glued to even NFL, for example. Right. Yeah. It's capturing that young generation, which is the hardest generation to capture. Uh, you've worked with so many businesses. 
I want to look at the gaming space. So for people who are interested in what we're going to talk about in this podcast, we're going to talk about Raj's history. Uh, he's from Mumbai. We're going to talk about the Indian esports team, which is one of the biggest growth regions for esports, especially as we look towards this new decade. And then we're going to talk about you know some of the financial mistakes and the revenue pathways in esports, because right now there's so many companies doing so many different things that people are figuring out what a successful esports company looks like in a lot of cases. Uh, and so we're going to be talking about all those different things throughout this podcast. Getting back to your profile, you grew up in Mumbai. When did you come over to the States? And what is the growth opportunity in the Indian esports scene right now? So I came to US uh, 24 years ago. Uh, so I came in 1996. Um, and I did uh, most of my schooling, uh, especially the master's uh, out in East Coast. Um, and uh, so I have gone through a lot of learning, uh, especially learning more about U.S. culture, but then also uh, part of uh, India when I was a kid out there, uh, learning a lot about the, the entire entertainment and, and also the sports industry. Uh, one thing that, uh, that uh, fascinated me uh, when I started going into esports and how China and South Korea were the dominant players right now, uh, from just not only revenue generation, but just the esports participation. Uh, one area that I, just from a pure numbers perspective, considering India is the second largest uh, smartphone uh, user base, along with the second largest population in the world, that's one area that I found there's a tremendous opportunity. Uh, and especially when I looked at the Bollywood space, which is like Hollywood, um, there are a lot more movies that comes out of Bollywood than Hollywood and that, that entire entertainment industry. And to me, esports, just from a viewership perspective, has a lot of elements of entertainment, media, music, so forth and so on. And that uh, has a, a good synchronization to the Indian community that I felt that many of the uh, things that we do in U.S., um, can be replicated out in India with the esports. Definitely. It's that mobile technology that really opens up so many opportunities and lowers the barrier to entry for the esports scene in so many ways. If you look at how mobile technology has moved, we went from playing games like Candy Crush on our phones to now playing Battle Royales, which are the most intense uh, server load game you could possibly play. Like an FPS Battle Royale is so impossible to think of using mobile phone technology from even like four years ago. So it's really awesome to see just how mobile phone technology is improving and how that's opening up new opportunities uh, in regions like India and like South America and probably Africa pretty soon and really globalizing esports in a way that it hadn't been before. That's correct. So one is the, the pure user base, right? And the other one is around the disposable income. So from monetization perspective, that's another big opportunity like China and like India. Um, the, the people are very willingly um, spending money on their mobile phones or mobile entertainment, um, along with just the, the movies uh, and, and music and, and, and those activities. Uh, there is, uh, with that kind of disposable income, there is a the huge opportunity for many of the U.S. companies to enter um, the market and capitalize on it. And I will use one of the examples that, uh, that we recently were working on last year was on the PUBG mobile space. So the mm -hmm. PUBG has been a dominating force in India right now. 
uh, their overall downloads have been more than 50 million downloads um, uh, with 33 million daily active users. This was one of the stats that we saw uh, last year uh, and made $1 billion in revenue um, and with just one game. And if you look at the, the population of India of just 1.4 and out of that 1.4, at least um, 30, 40 percent have smartphone, you are looking at a captive audience of 300, uh, 400 million users uh, that have uh, devices that are capable of uh, playing PUBG. Uh, and even the PUBG download is almost now two gig, uh, two gig download for the file on the Android device. Uh, the application, people are still downloading it, still going through the update process. And many of, in many cases, they want to also participate in esports activity. Uh, with that, um, with PUBG platform. And that's where, as you said, Mitch, with the Battle Royale style games, uh, people are really uh, excited, not only in just India, but even in US, uh, to get into this mobile esports, because that becomes more of a, a not only just a, a pastime kind of an activity where you're watching something or you're actively competing against each other, the mobile esports arrives. That's something that um, there are a lot of articles on news about it. Is something that we truly believe that that's the next wave of esports growth. Uh, so the traditional growth we saw on the PC side, uh, there's some on the console side, uh, but now the rise of uh, mobile esports, along with um, uh, the emerging countries like India, where there is maybe one or two major US games like PUBG and Call of Duty. This tremendous opportunity for all of us, especially all the U.S. citizens out here, uh, to to take that product uh, and launch it in India. And the regulations, unlike China, are so much easier to operate in. Um, it's it's a it's a market that is prime for exponential growth for all of us. Definitely, it's going to be one of the big things to watch out for in this new decade, which is my favorite thing to to preview. Is hey, what's going to happen in this new decade? Mobile esports, growth of esports in these emerging countries. Uh, to your point, the biggest benefit for esports across the board is taking down barriers to entry. We saw League of Legends and Riot Games do it uh, really smart by making the game free to play, and now other games have followed up on that same model. Uh, it's the reason why South Korea was so dominant at esports in the early ages because PC bangs became so popular that everybody was able to go play on a solid gaming PC and they became the best at esports. So across the board, we've seen breaking down barriers to entry as the most uh, successful way of building up companies and building up esports uh, in a variety of different ways. So as you talk about companies expanding into new regions, we've seen Fnatic open up Indian offices to explore that PUBG mobile opportunity. What's crucial for a company to know that wants to expand their operation uh, to a region that they might not be super familiar with uh, previously? So the n number one thing that I, I pretty much preach, and I've been saying this for the last at least 15 years, is knowing the local culture. Uh, to me, the localization is a very critical uh, component of launching any uh, any product in any country. Um, that's something that I personally, when I came to US, right, for me, the first thing was to localize myself of, uh, coming from India to be, be true a US citizen with the habits, with behavior, with understanding what 
uh, entice people to open up their wallet, what, what entice people to even call you for dinners and so forth, right? So that localization is very critical um, for any product launch. Uh, I would say Toyota does an amazing job in past, uh, like they have pretty much dominated many of these uh, Asian markets along with Latin American markets uh, as a world's number one uh, car manufacturer. Uh, Riot did a tremendous amount of effort uh, with, um, with localization with their platform. So if you look at Riot's uh, overall um, uh, numbers of user base, uh, back again, this is some old stats, but the, the stats were around less than 7% of the users were uh, for League of Legends were US. Uh, most of the uh, users were outside US and there was a lot of localization that was done um, for the platforms to run effectively. Same thing with PUBG and esports uh, activities. That's one of the key things that when you want to enter a country like India or Philippines or Indonesia, um, any of those countries, the first thing is finding a good local partner. Second one would be understanding the culture, having your team uh, on, on literally uh, in the country to understand what, what, what's working, what's not. And then also tailoring your platform. And most of the time, what you do is just reskin your existing platform, a US platform, which PUBG did very well with some of the, the localized language and also characters. So the, that's where you will see um, like, uh, like PUBG main character, right? Uh, um, is wearing an Indian outfit, for example, or doing namaste, for example. That's another thing that they, they show it on the, uh, on the banners everywhere. It's just to, to say that we are entering the country, we are a US product, US company, uh, and we are uh, entering a new market, but we are also very humble and great, grateful about um, getting opportunity to enter this market. And we are localizing some of the components, not every single component. Um, and that's something is very critical for an esports platform or any gaming platform. You see the same thing uh, even on the on the consumer product level, whether it's Pepsi, whether it's Coca Cola, whether it's McDonald's. Uh, they have localized their food choices, right? In India, and especially in Mumbai, you'll see a lot of local elements. Um, so that's uh, that's one thing. The second one is it's a journey to enter a country. Uh, the profitability and um, and the breaky one depending on how you operate, uh, may take um, uh, a few quarters or, or, it may, um, or it may be overnight success. So, so that's where, from a journey perspective, don't expect like, okay, you're launching the game and you'll have a billion downloads the next day, right? So that's something that is, um, um, there are a lot of companies and startups uh, that they think that they will be overnight successful, uh, but that doesn't, overnight success doesn't happen that way. So that's another element uh, um, um, that you want to be careful about. And, and the third, third and major one that I see is uh, partnering with local uh, sponsors, uh, advertisements, uh, merchandises, uh, and really making sure that you have the community that's going to support and, and launch your product. Because without having that local community uh, from a business side and also on the gaming side and the user side, it's very hard to be successful. So the community aspect is, is critical um, uh, for a, a successful launch in a country. Lots of lots of really good things in there. Uh, following up on your point about how Riot Games specifically has expanded to new regions, it's a great case study for creating these centralized regional leagues 
that work really well in that given region. If you compare it to something like Activision Blizzard's Overwatch model, where it's a worldwide league, but they all compete in the same sort of ecosystem, uh, you can see that Riot's development has actually allowed them to uh, build out regions with a little bit better clarity and also make a much more expansive league come out of it with 13 different regions that each have uh, six to, I think, 16 teams at the top end. It's an impressive whole ecosystem versus the Overwatch League, which is 18 teams, all big name teams backed by a lot of money. But it's just a different approach. And I think Riots is ultimately the one that's going to be more sustainable long term as different regions can be more nimble and focus in on what works for their specific area. And also highly profitable because ultimately we want to make sure that, uh, especially the viewers of this channel, um, uh, they, they are aware that if you want to be highly profitable, because in esports, that's one thing that uh, many companies come and go. Uh, is that they do high valuation through um, uh, through many different channels, whether it's the big brands or big players or big sponsors, uh, and then quickly realize that um, that uh, the approach they used of a non-localized manner, right, uh, doesn't really generate the same profitability. So if you want to create a more of a profitable model where it's sustainable uh, and it, it grows organically in many cases, um, you want to have a localized concept of growth. And that's why I personally think Riot's approach is the one of the best one. I would tend to agree with you. And I'm glad you brought up profitability because I'm going to hit you with a very loaded question at the center of uh, most esports boardroom discussions. It's what's our path to profitability? So much of the esports ecosystem still relies on bringing in outside funders and acting as basically a, uh, a startup, a tech startup. What is the path to profitability? Obviously, it changes for an esports team versus a tournament organizer. Uh, let's do a team. Where are those paths to revenue and paths to profitability? We see massive valuations. We don't see the revenue numbers necessarily to match. In your opinion, what are some unexplored avenues to build up that revenue? Yeah. So if you, uh, I'll just give you some stats, Mitch, on, on the 2018. Uh, and 2019 is still getting published uh, for worldwide. Uh, the stats for esports revenue stream: you have sponsorship, which is around 40% of the revenue, and this is out of appro approximately 906 million dollars, which is close to let's say rounded up to uh, 1 billion um, in revenue for esports. 40% uh, comes in the sponsorship segment. 20% uh, comes in the advertisement segment. Uh, media rights. Uh, is around 18%. Uh, game publisher fees is around 13 And then the merchandise and ticket viewership uh, is around 11%. So that's the overall distribution, uh, which is more or less the same for even 2019. Um, and if you look at those segments, right now, the lot of money that came in is through sponsorship, through all this big tech uh, kind of bubble kind of valuation-wise. Uh, that people were investing and um, with, whether you got a Red Bull sponsorship or Samsung sponsorship uh, and, and they got significant revenue uh, through those channels. Uh, the way I see and many of the experts in the industry believe the same, um, the way for future is not just the player uh, getting the significant um, uh, uh, portion of, of the revenue stream, 
but also figuring out the viewership and also figuring out uh, the advertisement, merchandising, and like the movie industry, right? So if you look at the movie ticket sales, and this has a high correlation to the esports mm-hmm. uh, revenue model, uh, the actors get one one portion of the revenue stream. The producers and the directors, meaning the, the people who are producing the games, get X percentage. Uh, then obviously there's a staff and the crew that's getting some portion of the revenue stream. And then there are a lot of uh, brand logos and, and uh, things that inside the movie industry, inside the movie film that get certain portion of the revenue stream. But ultimately the ticket sales are a significant portion of the revenue. So there, there is a, there's element with esports too, where people watching the content, but having an engaging content where people are also doing competitive gaming uh, or or challenging each other or even uh, predicting who is going to be the winner, which is something that uh, Black Mirror did in the Netflix show, um, which many users can relate to. Uh, that level of engagement is really the future of esports, and I'm talking about a decade-long journey. Uh, but to me, that level of engagement uh, of competing, challenging, predicting who is going to win, uh, and it's not gambling or betting. Uh, it's more about active engagement, and depending on the active engagement, you get certain level of uh, ticket or merchandise and so forth. So the way to profitability is really having that uh, right level of matchmaking that happens at the esports level, uh, and especially in the ladder style. Um, generally, at the top level, you have most of the time a qualified teams or individuals, and then having that community sponsorship or the tournament organizers running the platform. Um, that's another area where there's significant revenue stream. So, to answer the question for a way to profitability. There are two elements I see. One is the the entire uh, support network, I call it as, which is your tournament organizer, your brand sponsors, your advertisement and and so forth. And the the third one is, a second one is around uh, the players uh, having a more of an engaging uh, content, uh, engaging um, play that's going to also excite uh, the users to have the viewership. So the player side is one thing and the gamer side in this case. Um, and then the other side is the entire uh, business side uh, where you're looking at many of those other elements. Um, so those at, at a high level are the two uh, concepts that needs to be further enhanced. Um, and, and for us as a company, NextGen, um, a TM launching the product, uh, we are more focused on the engaging content and running tournaments, uh, especially with an objective that players are going to make um, uh, a, a good earning out of it at, a, at an individual competition level or at an in, uh, individual sponsorship level. And then the second element that we are also focused on, okay, how does the brand who are sponsoring gets the right level of viewership, right level of engagement, um, and, and also the game publisher gets the right level of revenue stream. So so most of the time what we are seeing right now, it's a one-way stream. There are millions of dollars funded by, let's, I'm just using Rick Fox as an example, but let's say millions of dollars funded by a celebrity um, through their network, and then hoping the best that, that the company generates the revenue through these six different channels I mentioned before. 
But the true engaging would be, you know, there is going to be revenue share, profit share, partnership share, where all the key members are enticed enough, including the gamers, including the, uh, the viewers, including the brand sponsors, the merchandise, and the game publisher. So um, with, and then also any of the media uh, rights. So if you have a true revenue stream model where it's distributed based on the performance of the, the esports event, now everybody has a skin in the game to make that event super, super profitable and, and super performing. Um, and that's the, our model that we are trying to uh, implement in India uh, and also in US uh, with that kind of mindset. Absolutely. There's so many things I, I want to bring up uh, related to that, starting with the uh, the revenue model and the media rights deals. I feel like a decent part of that is taking some of the power out of the hands of the publishers uh, right now. I know there's some media rights and some like team revenue splits. But Riot Games, for instance, or Activision Blizzard gets, we'll do Activision Blizzard because they had a wide, they publicized $160 million, I think, from YouTube for the Overwatch and Call of Duty leagues uh, for three years. Are they, how much of that money goes to the teams? From my understanding, it's not very much at all. And how do we change that relationship so that uh, everybody's represented at the table when Activision Blizzard has? the game, they own the court, the ball, the league. Uh, it's like Spalding and the NBA wrapped into one. When they control all the power, how do you make it so they give up some of that media rights money uh, and make it a more fair and equal ecosystem in a way that we see across traditional sports? Yeah, so it's a very good uh, observation and your observation is very correct, Mitch. So uh, technically the players or the teams don't get a significant portion of it at all. Um, so when media rights are, are published, so if you look at the, the portion, again, uh, based on the numbers that I shared before, 18% of the total revenue stream goes to the, to the media rights. But if you look at the actual team, maybe they are getting less than 1%. Um, so, um, so that's where we need to change those dynamics. And that's where uh, what we are really pushing for is a fair and square deal in, in terms of... Uh, being an open, transparent uh, platform, uh, not only for indie games, but also for the major competitors that we are, we are hosting the games with. He, here is how much the teams are making. Here is how the platform is making. Here is how much the media gets a share of those esports stream. Um, and that community that we are building with NextGen TM is something that many companies uh, either should be replicating or they're already moving towards that path. Um, so that that's where the transparency will will generate a lot of uh, activity. The other thing with the big companies, whether it's Activision, Blizzard, whether it is uh, uh, Riot, whether it is when Zynga to some extent, um, uh, or Warner, any you know, any of those companies, they do have significant IP invested over years. So they are trying to obviously recoup some of the the cost and money uh, based on um, some of the the R and D money that has been spent. But for indie, this is more of a, 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 um, uh, a, a platform on that, whether it's with us or with, with somebody else, uh, they, they partner with somebody, they launch it in emerging market with a very known IP or an unknown IP, um, and uh, they can really capitalize on this space. Uh, but, the, but your point remains is that right now there's still 
not an open transparent model like NBA, like what LeBron James makes or, um, or what Lakers is making, right? So that's something uh, is, it needs to happen at a, at a macro level. But I think at a grassroots level, we can start small. Uh, we can target this open transparent model for esports distribution. And then eventually uh, we can scale up to larger corporation. And I'm sure when, when the competition becomes tough, uh, many of the large corporations or the gaming companies are going to reevaluate their uh, their financial models. And that's the point I was actually about to bring up is competition. If we use traditional sports as our example, those leagues did not start with the massive team valuations they have today. They had a lot of competition, competing leagues. If you look at the NBA, you had the ABA pushing the NBA into a more modernized version and then stars get built up those stars then strike to get money and so it's all these different things that built up over years and years and years that esports just hasn't had the time uh for players unions to even form most of the way which is the first step to get players compensated former union probably have to strike at some point for the players to strike players have to have enough star power to feel like they can do that and they won't just be replaced by other random people. So it's a lot of a uh, lot of different factors that go into that. But I think most people, especially all the people coming over from sports, see it as just a matter of time before this becomes to resemble more and more like traditional sports. It's just right now, the publishers still hold all the power and we're waiting to see where that competition develops from and how it will impact esports uh, going forward. That's so true. Yeah. So it, to me, as you said, it's just a matter of time. Uh, we are still in an emerging state, um, uh, but uh, it's, um, it's, it's going to happen. I mean, this is something I don't think anyone, any one publisher or a game producer can stop. Um, it's just a matter of time where we're seeing already a big transition. Uh, and, and to me, this is a natural uh, aspect. Definitely. I want to switch gears a little bit. Uh, we've already had this 30 minutes, so I want to make sure we hit these last few points before I let you go. Uh, I'm curious, you've worked with a lot of companies and with NextGen, you're working with a, a variety of different companies. What are some of the main mistakes you see uh, come up time and time again? I'm not asking you to name anything or anybody, but on a broad level, uh, especially in the gaming sector, you've worked in so many other places, Bank of America, Toyota. What are some mistakes you see coming out of gaming companies, which are usually uh, small, maybe startups? What are those mistakes you're seeing? So one of the biggest mistake uh, I see in, in the gaming industry specifically over the last 10 plus years um, is um, when you're especially an indie game, you focus a lot on the content and gameplay but then you forget, forget many times uh, about the innovation and marketing aspect uh, where you don't have enough funds uh, to really promote your product. So then you have an amazing product, but nobody knows about it. Or you may have a product that's a good gameplay, that is a good gameplay elements, but it, it's not unique enough or innovation, innovative enough. So, and that's where eventually, as we know, more than half a million games are released uh, every year. Um, and out of that, maybe less than 1% survive. Uh, and then uh, out of that less, less than 1%, only maybe another 1% uh, of that uh, are becoming a huge success. So for an indie uh, game developers, the, the key thing would be focusing on and having some reserves uh, in the marketing space 
and also targeting marketing dollars very wisely, uh, where you can see the ROI, uh, the return on investment is significant uh, for what you are trying to do from a user acquisition perspective. So one of the key elements that I, I emphasize on, on is that, okay, for your next level of funding, which is pretty much the cash flow management for the gaming side, uh, you need to make sure that the, the when you go to angels or VCs or any investor, uh, you you figure out a way that you are showing the user growth and user acquisition. And some of the emerging markets, whether it's India, China, doesn't matter which country you target, uh, you can get a very good traction on your game, especially in English-speaking countries in the emerging market space, where you can show to your uh, investors that, okay, you were able to get half a million download within few months. Uh, and you have daily active users of hundred plus thousand dollars, uh, hundred hundred thousand users uh, um, in in very first few months, right? So those kind of metrics uh, makes your game survive much fast and gets your game not only survive but thrive. Uh, and that's something that I see many of the even the uh, on the gaming side and the esports front that people uh, generally don't take that into account. And, and we can definitely help, but uh, there are a lot of other companies that does the same. Uh, and um, and if you if you want any more further advice on this topic, uh, you can obviously uh, look me up by my last name at on Twitter or Instagram or or LinkedIn, um, and and I can help you with some of the guidance. Um, uh, but that's something I would say: cash flow management, focusing on the revenue, having some reserves for marketing, and and targeting the user growth first after you while you're developing the product. Uh, that's a very critical thing. Otherwise, you'll have an amazing product, good gameplay, but uh, you 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 missed it die. Uh, so that's something I see for especially young companies in the esports uh, space that they make a biggest mistake. And then the last item I will add is that uh, why do esports company fail? Is uh, managing expectation, managing cash flow, which is mm -hmm. something that most of the companies fail, but especially on the esports front. Uh, you may think that, okay, if you sign up this team for a few thousand or a few hundred thousand dollars um, and you are going to put all uh, your eggs in one ba basket by um, having those uh, big star players or the big star games um, that um, will help you scale and grow, that's not, a, the silver bullet, that's not a silver bullet that will work ever. So you need to really focus on the community aspect of it. So the community aspect can happen at a, at a, at a grassroots level. Um, and that's something that uh, you want to make sure uh, your esports are competitive. You're giving some rewards back to the users, um, whether it's in the blockchain element or then crypto space. That's another thing that, um, that you may want to look at from innovation perspective, uh, because that's where there's a future growth and, and potential on the gaming side that you may want to even look at uh, but have some enticement and focus on more of a, a grassroots level community management. Wow, that's a, that's fantastic advice there. I would totally agree that cash flow management is the biggest issue you see from organizations and even esports publications in a lot of cases. They start up a company and they offer high rates to freelancers to start and then six months in, those rates have halved and they just have no idea because they, you know, it's a, it's a two, three year runway before you really build out profitability, you build out the user 
space. And if you're not planning for that, uh, you're going to end up in hot water pretty quickly, which is why we've seen most esports publications are backed by much bigger companies because esports only pubs uh, struggle to find their revenue in a lot of cases. And I think that's true for a lot of companies across the industry, uh, just people who want to jump in and want immediate returns. And this is not the industry of immediate returns, uh, unless you're extremely lucky or extremely smart. That's correct. <laughs> but that's where uh, there are a lot of ways of getting some traction. And my, my um, final advice would be focus on user growth first. So if you have the right user base, whether it's for your game or for your even esports or the community and engagement, um, then funding becomes relatively easy. Whether you get outside funding, whether you get the brand sponsorship or advertisement dollars, whatever it is, uh, that becomes so much of an easy play if you have the right user base. So, so and then getting the right user base, you may um, want to tap into some of the emerging markets where you will pay literally zero point. 007 cents per user acquisition and those are your daily active users that are actively going to play um, and and with PUBG's success and even with with riot success with league of legends success you can see that that model if you be highly successful outside us uh, launching the same um, model in us becomes so much easier um, and and we have many companies that have proven that strategy especially in the gaming side yeah, absolutely. And there's so many uh, examples across tech as well. I think Twitter might be one of the most famous ones where Twitter took massive losses in revenue year after year, but they kept bringing in funding because they had so many users. And in the last few years, they've flipped and actually become very profitable as a company. And so uh, it's it's kind of the model. As long as you get those users, to your point, the funding will come in because people are confident that as long as users are there, there are ways to make the revenue even if you haven't quite figured out the perfect revenue stream yet. And that's really the esports opportunity in a nutshell. There's a lot of eyeballs, uh, not a ton of money coming in, but everyone's pretty confident it will eventually come in in some way or another. That's so true. <laughs> so thank you for taking the time, Raj. You could follow him at Raj Kotia on Twitter, CEO of NextGenTM. Follow them at NextGenTM. His guest page will be uh, linked underneath this podcast. So you could click on that of all his social profiles. Reach out to him, especially if you're uh, starting an esports company. You want to talk to somebody who knows a lot about the space, has been around the block. Uh, he's a great resource to use there. So thank you for taking the time, Raj. Much appreciated. Uh, and that's all for this Esports Network podcast. Yeah, thank you, Mitch, for having me.